0: On Monday, the Guardian newspaper, it printed an article, um, and it was entitled, Where in the World is the Worst Place to be a Christian? Where in the world is the worst place to be a Christian? It's unusual, that, for the Guardian, because the Guardian is uh, pretty much a, a liberal broadsheet. It's usually very vocal against Christians and the Christian faith. But for once it reported about Christians with a note of sympathy, And and the article itself was pretty sickening. Uh, It it simply listed nation after nation. 25 nations in all. Nations where Christians are killed, where Christians are tortured and abused and beaten and restricted in what they can say and where they can meet. And the point is, this is today. This is happening around the world right now. Uh, and, And the sad fact is, things aren't getting any better in fact, they are getting a lot worse. The BBC, strangled by so-called political, political correctness, they dare not report this and have not done for a few years now. But atrocity after atrocity is occurring in our so-called enlightened, modern and sophisticated world, and we ignore it. Now, we brush it under the carpet of that political correctness. And can I ask you, how does that make you feel? Do you think that the media are right to so often ignore this kind of genocidal mass persecution of Christians around the world? Does that not make you want to cry out in some way for for some form of justice? Does that make you even say, I want to do something? Well, I think Psalm 110 provides more answers than we have time for to today. More comfort than I guess we can ever imagine, but also more justice. There is more righteous vengeance in this passage than I think we ever dare perceive in a very sanitised world that we live in. And that is why this passage for some today I think will be, yes, great joy, There will be great comfort to some of us, I'm sure, but at the same time, I think all of us, without exception, will find these words incredibly difficult to hear. Of all the biblical descriptions of judgments, this is probably the most condensed, but also the most dreadful. I don't know, if you if you're watching this on TV, you know when the presenter kind of goes, and we're about to go to an article now, and some of the images and some of the descriptions are pretty gruesome, and therefore if you're feeling rather squeamish, why don't you just turn off or we'll turn over for a few seconds and we'll, we'll come back in, in a, a couple of minutes. It's that kind of passage. As you heard it read a moment ago, you'll have noticed the language is dreadful. It is terrifying at times. In a sense, it's In some ways, you kind of want to put your ears, your fingers in your ears, like a little child, go, "Oh, you know, it's too awful to consider." And yet, and hear this, please: this chapter is the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New. Added to that is it's also the most referenced messianic psalm. That is, let me describe that, that is an Old Testament psalm that points directly to and speaks of the Lord Jesus and his ministry. Some of the more famous ones that you'll know, things like Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd and so on. They're they're messianic psalms, they speak of Jesus, they're other well-known examples. Jesus also uses this psalm himself. Matthew 22 and Mark 12, as he describes, um, as he understands his own ministry, but also as he teaches of his own ministry. You see, we haven't got time to go into all the complexities of that teaching of Jesus in Matthew 22 and Mark 12. But suffice to say, at this moment, you need to grasp, we need to grasp that this psalm is central to Jesus, to his teaching, to his understanding of who he is. And therefore, this psalm should be critical to us, despite its dreadful words, to our ministry, to our faith, to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has come to do and also what he will do. This psalm is critical to our understanding, all of that. Now, if you sit here and you, you just want Jesus as a simple saviour, friend, friend, the one who offers life eternal, but you want to kind of leave it in that sanitised way, not understanding why and how the Scriptures have led us to hit that point, where and when the necessity of Jesus' ministry uh, was formulated. If you just want the ABCs of Jesus, well, let me tell you, when you leave this building, you will be more easily swayed, more easily drawn, by more sophisticated and exciting alternatives when they come your way. Yes, Psalm 110 is uncomfortable. Let's just acknowledge that at the beginning. But it does offer eternal comfort to those who let, if they dare let their minds and their hearts be enlivened by this broad and detailed and yet devastating picture of Jesus. One last thing before we dive into the text, if I can. Um, We've seen that Jesus understands it as critical as describing his ministry, but so too do the apostles. It's interesting, isn't it? In Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, when the Spirit had come and be delivered. Yes, what is it he quoted? quotes about Jesus? Peter is declaring to a watching world, all nations have gathered, that Jesus, who he proclaims, who he's empowered by, who offers forgiveness for sin and eternal life in his name. The Lord that he proclaims is the Lord of Psalm 110, as he quotes from it. So David writes this psalm to describe, essentially, the terror of the Lord towards people who reject him. And we need to take seriously, and we will do now, going through in detail, the language that is used and understand the consequences, not only for ourselves, that's important, yes, but also the people out there, our friends, our loved ones. We can bow to the rule of the Lord, the crushing king of judgment, or we can meet him as the eternal king priest who offers life and peace with God forever. In a sense, that's the alternatives provided here. And that's where we're heading, so let's have a look at the text if we can. Why don't you get your heads down and have a look at Psalm 110. Let me give you kind of some structural markers, if I can, to begin with. You'll see um, the backbone of the psalm is in these two oracles they're described. Two oracles. um, In the original, therefore, verse 1 reads like this. Let me read it to you. It says, The oracle of Yahweh to my Lord. It is a direct message from God. There's an oracle. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. And it is used here. It appears in our translations. You see Lord in capitals. That is Yahweh. Okay. So verse 1 reads in our translations. The Lord in capitals. Yahweh says to my Lord. So the oracle there is introduced. And it's about to be said, the oracle itself follows, look at what it says, it's inverted commas helpfully in our translation, sit at my right hand until I make an enemy, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now if you just flip down to verse 4 then, here's the second oracle or message from God. It's helpful, as I said, in our translations it comes in inverted commas so you can see them there. That's not in the original by the way, but they're there helpfully for us again it's introduced the lord has sworn and has not changed well, will not change his mind let me just say a word about that cuz that's really interesting isn't it let me say because notice that there's there's, there's an oath there isn't there? There's, the lord has sworn it's interesting because there's no word for kind of god promising something within uh, hebrew language okay what is going on here is that there's a condescension here to our weakness. There's no word available because God doesn't make promises. Because his word is, by virtue of who he is, a promise. God's word is always true. God's word is always sure. God's word is always trustworthy. So he's condescending here to, to our weakness because we need convincing. So he swears by nothing else but by himself because that's all he can swear by that he will not change his mind the oracle is introduced then it's declared look at the the declaration of it in verse 4 you are a priest forever now we'll come on to what that means in a moment but structurally you see what's going on two oracles introduced first and, and then this kind of detailed explanation that comes after those oracles that's what's going on but interestingly, one last structural thing if we can in Psalm 110. We must not ignore this, what's called the superscription. Look at just before verse one. You'll see uh, of David, a psalm, it's kind of verse naught in a sense. Now we mustn't do the, we mustn't ignore this with any psalm. But in Psalm 110, if you like, it, you cannot ignore it because it's so helpful in the translation and the understanding of what's going on. It's of David as the superscription reads. Now, that is crucial simply because of verse 1. Let me show you why. For if it is David writing this psalm, the question is, who is he writing about? Have a look at verse 1. Who is David writing about? You see, the startling fact here is that David speaks of a king as his lord. Of course, when we turn to the Gospels, we see the logic. It's Jesus to whom David is referring. Jesus uses Psalm 110, as I mentioned, Matthew 22 and Mark 12. And we see there that Jesus isn't denying that he's David's son. He understands that he's in that kind of Davidic dynastic line of David. And we can read about that in Matthew 1 in the genealogy there. But he is David's son legally in that sense. But Jesus is more than a son. He's a lord, that is, he's king. And David is the writer of this psalm, this song, yes, inspired by the spirit of God. He's anticipating a greater David. A a Davidic king, yes, but one who will rule ultimately. Hence the scepter in verse 2 that is handed by Yahweh. Well, let's have a look at this. Uh, The first oracle. So your first point, we see the Lord, the warrior king. And this really is verse one to three, but then flips over and it's kind of spelt out a bit more in verse five to seven. So we're going to look at those verses first and then come back to the singular verse four uh, at the end. Now, what David is pointing us to is the fact that Jesus, the Lord, I summarise there as kind of a warrior king, a ruling, a judging king. Let's quickly run through some of the texts. Just so you understand the language being used, why don't you look at verse 1 there. He sits at the right hand of the Lord. It sits at the right hand of Yahweh. Now, sitting there is, it's a position of authority. It's also a position where you said, you've done your job. You complete the, you've completed the work. We also see it, he sits at where? The right hand That is, it's a demonstrating uh, a place of uh, utmost authority, and David would have known it's a higher authority than he had himself. He sits until. It's interesting that word there, isn't it? That is, there's some waiting to be done. He's pointing here to a a time beyond. And what is it waiting for? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It is a total picture, you know, can you imagine putting your child there on the floor, your feet up onto, onto, it's a picture of total subjugation, I don't do that by the way, but you know, it's it's a picture of total subjugation. Those who reject God's rule stand in opposition to this king and we see very clearly it doesn't work out very well for them, does it? Look at verse 2, if you can, quickly. The Lord God will extend the warrior's king, warrior king's mighty scepter. That is, Yahweh bestows on the Lord Jesus' rule, but also with the scepter power. And the scepter is given to smash, if you like, the enemies of God. To break their rebellion, essentially, the picture is there. Verse 3. Very quickly, I'm going to run through these verses. Um, This is probably one of the most difficult verses to translate, hence why if you look down into the footnote of your Bibles, you'll see an alternative translation, which many kind of modern scholars believe that that is a more accurate reading because of some of the Dead Sea Scrolls that we found. It suggests that the Lord gives to the Messiah King the work of defeating his enemies, yes, but there will be this large army with him, arrayed in majesty he will be, and fresh for battle, hence the the morning dew kind of phrase there. If you go forward, we're just going to skip verse four for a moment, we're going to come return to it. But look how now the king exercises that power in verses five through to seven. Again, verse five can be a little bit confusing, because if you notice previously, the Lord in capitals, Yahweh, is, he kind of uses a different name for the Lord Yahweh in this verse five. Not Yahweh, but I here. And, and the translators argue about this, but in a sense it doesn't really matter. The picture is the same. In verse 5 you have Yahweh and the Lord, that is, that is Jesus here, the Father of Jesus, each at, a, at each other's right hand. That is, they're bestowing authority and, and rule in each other. But they are now working together in their action of judgment. But the picture is a brutal one. And total victory is achieved through a final judgment. And the crushing term there, I mean, I can't avoid this. It is essentially a literal shattering into pieces irreversibly. And verse 6 adds to the destruction. It is a horrifying picture, literally a heaping up of corpses. See, the, the psalm functions in this way. It's like, you know, with children, building blocks, just being kind of built up into a, in a mosaic kind of picture, adding facets to show that this king is who he is. Verse seven, completes the picture as the warrior renews his strength by the streams. In a sense, to, to complete his objective, to keep going, That is, the Lord that is being revealed to David will not stop until the job is done. The job of crushing judgment. And so that is the text. Yeah, I've kind of picked out a few bits so you understand it better. That is the text and what an awful picture it is. A bloodthirsty battle. And there's only one victor, isn't there? David is describing the Lord Jesus here in language that, if we're honest, we find so difficult, don't we, to comprehend and to understand. But if you understand it, you must see that the the writer here, this is the only language that he can kind of draw on. The great battle, the great warrior. Uh, This is the language that is available to him to describe what will, will on the last day, that judgment day, well, be utterly indescribable. It's a whole lot worse than this. But what do we do with this? Can we really take Jesus as the warrior, king of judgment, or is it too much? I kind of want to ask you, what do you expect? And then even more pertinent to us would be, what do you want? What do you want for the thousands of Christians who are being crushed and executed today? Do you want the perpetrators to just walk free? Is that the kind of justice that you want? Should we seek vengeance? Should we start a Christchurch Irlesville militia? No. Romans 12, 19, along with numerous other passages are very clear in the Bible. Let me read a couple of verses from this. Verse 17, verse, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And likewise, you could read Revelation 19. I'm so looking forward to doing this next year in our Bible studies. Revelation is one of those... Uh, Probably unique in the Bible in the sense that it it draws on New Testament doctrine, but does it in a kind of portrays it in Old Testament language. And if you read the picture of the rider of the white horse representing in Revelation 19 God taking vengeance on his enemies, it is frightening, it is awful. These biblical pictures are very uncomfortable, but, but do you think well, we should just kind of like redact them? Should, do you think we should like take them out a little bit? Rip out these pages? Rip out these, these chapters? They are hard, aren't they? Do you think people like myself, you know, preachers and, or, or ministers, should just say, oh, hey, come on. Yeah, we, we've moved on from these times. We, we need to just not, not talk about these things now. Perhaps let me just put it in a more practical way. When ISIS crucify more and more Christians as they are doing daily at the moment, what should we do? How should we respond? What should we think? If you do not feel anything when you hear that kind of news, as one preacher uh, I was reading this week put it, he said, your moral conscience is in a very diseased state. If you struggle, for example, with the imprecatory psalms that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago, uh, those psalms where the writer cries out to God, for God to do his work of vengeance, vengeance is mine, judgment is mine, and he takes vengeance on those who persecute his people. If you kind of just say, oh, I don't want to hear those, there's something wrong with you. Psalmist here is doing exactly as God has instructed Throughout his word, vengeance is God's work and he will repay. In a sense, we are to leave it in his hands. Not repay evil with evil, but to leave it in his hands. We want to seek justice, yes, but not vengeance and not repay evil with evil. Now, today should be, a, in a sense, a wake up call for us if we are Christians to recognize that the world will always be hostile to the Lord's Messiah and his people. Which is why the enemies of God can only be overcome by this conquest and this strength that we see in Psalm 110. Judgment will one day come. Yes, it is utterly frightening. But it is the only way of true and right justice. Now, you may be thinking, well, this is all well and good. This is happening hundreds of miles away, you know, thousands of miles away. It doesn't happen in my leafy suburb. Or my kind of nice kind of area of southwest London, it doesn't happen here. It Doesn't happen in my office, where I spend most of my life. But let me put it this way: if you dare to claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you know hostility comes, don't you? You felt it. You've heard it. Think of those times where you have dared to share your faith. You know, with colleagues. Loved ones, your neighbours, have they responded? Is it been, oh, I love hearing that, tell me more. Or has it been dismissive and put down comments? When you became a Christian, perhaps, if you can think about, you know, if you became a Christian recently, did everyone kind of give you high fives down the road? Did everyone give you a big hug? Oh, it's the best news I've ever heard that you became a Christian? Wonderful. No. I guess some of you have found that your families might have ostracized you. If you dare to take a stand, for example, on, let's say, some form of New Testament ethics, how, how do you respond? How do people respond to you? Hostility? Maybe even some verbal persecution. See, the Bible teaches that the world is not apathetic to Christ. Do not be naive. The world is antagonistic to Christ and his followers. So what will God do? Will God do nothing for those in prison who have been mocked and beaten today? No, the Lord is the warrior king who will one day judge. Vengeance will be his. I guess the reason we do so little at times, speak so infrequently, is because we fear people and we think people will get away with it as well that they can carry on mocking us. They can carry on just undermining who we love and trust with our lives. They won't. They won't get away with it. Because God will have his vengeance. Yes, this is really horrifying language, isn't it? But if God will not take vengeance, the enemies of the gospel will win. The persecutors... Will walk away scot free. Those who mock and ridicule you will never get what they deserve. Those who deride and undermine biblical ethics within politics around the world, they will have the last laugh. Do you want that? Of course not. Slightly reluctantly, and I say that very carefully, we want this. We want Psalm 110. We want the Lord, the Jesus, to be the warrior king who will one day come in judgment to crush his enemies. And this is the warning to them. Of course, at one time we've all been enemies of God. We recognize that. We know our own hearts, don't we? We've stood in, in animosity towards God. So do we cower in fear at this point? No. There is hope. And that is why we turn to this second oracle very quickly in verse 4 to finish off. For there we see the priest, the eternal mediator. We looked at the oracle's introduction, haven't we? The Lord sworn, has sworn, but what is the oracle? What is the hope in the midst of all this judgment and this crushing of the warrior king? Look at it, it's extraordinary. You are a priest forever in the order of a strange name, Melchizedek. Do you see what mercy and kindness is on offer? Well, let me show you if I can, very quickly. See, the king of verse one, who has all power to drive out people from God's presence, is also the eternal priest with all power to admit repentant sinners into God's presence. He's the mediating priest. Enemies of God can be assured that whoever turns and trusts to this King-priest, here we see in verse 4, will know relief from that crushing judgment of which the rest of the psalm speaks of. Look at verse 4. It is essentially the promise of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in the midst of a world under judgment. See, Psalm 110 can only be understood with the both comings of this king, of the Lord. He will crush the enemies on the final judgment day, But in his first coming, as he stretches out his arms on the cross, he becomes the eternal mediator between us and God, opening up the way for us to spend eternity with God in his love. Now, I wish I had time to spend on the order of Melchizedek. I actually did listen to a a lecture on Friday for an hour and a half on a drive when I was going to get my son from camp. And uh, an hour and a half of Don Carson on the order of Melchizedek. It was joyous. And uh, I can make that available to you. But in summary, let me give you a tiny bit on Melchizedek, if I can. Because unpacking who he is helps us understand in glorious technicolour who Jesus is. In summary, if you think about the the priests of the Old Testament, they were always in the Aaronic Aaronic line, line of Aaron, um, they, they were always separate to the kingly line, weren't they? So the priest was never the king, and vice versa. But here in Psalm 110, the king, verse 1, is also the priest. The Lord is the priest as well, the eternal priest in the line of Melchizedek. Melchizedek only appears in the Old Testament twice, though. Uh, It's an extraordinary story. Once in Genesis 14, we get three verses about him. And here in Psalm 110, just a note aside, his name actually means King of Righteousness. We find that out uh, in, Psalm, in Hebrews 7, which speaks about it a lot more. But in those three verses of Genesis 14, these are the things that we learn about Melchizedek. And they speak very much about what we need to know about Jesus. Melchizedek is a king of a town called Salem. Salem means King of Peace. Sorry, it means peace. So he was the King of Peace. So he's the king of righteousness by virtue of his name. He's the king of peace by being the king of that town, Salem. He's also, in Genesis 14, a priest of God Most High. Abraham receives a blessing from Melchizedek and is revered by Abraham as he receives a tithe from him. But strangely, and this is the weird thing about Melchizedek, he's got no mum and he's got no dad. In a book which is utterly obsessed with genealogies and lines of people, there's no no mention of Melchizedek whatsoever. In Genesis 5, with all the long genealogies, the table of nations in Genesis 10, no mention of whatsoever. So therefore, what we know of Melchizedek really comes more when we get to Hebrews 7, which sort of spells out what it means as it points to Jesus. But as David writes this psalm in, interestingly, Jerusalem, which is probably where Melchizedek was previously king, he understands that uh, as he read the law every day, and he would have read this passage in Genesis 14, what Melchizedek was, David could never be. Yes, he was a king, but he could never be the priest. He could never be the priest king. But David sees in God's word and understands something of the promises that we saw in our Bible over in 2 Samuel 7, that there would be an eternal Davidic king. Now, drawing all these things together, that the king must be someone who could be a priest king for eternity in the Davidic line, he writes now something utterly inspired by God in this psalm, Psalm 110. The Lord of verse 1, you see, is now verse 4, the priest forever. Not in the order of Levi, because all the Levitical priests died, but now in the order of Melchizedek. Now, David isn't saying, because in Genesis 14, because Melchizedek has got no mum and no dad, and we can't find no kind of like family line of him, that he was eternal. He's just saying, it appears that way. Melchizedek, therefore, as a kind of type or a model, um, uh, anticipates who Jesus is. He resembles him. As he goes on and on. The point, you can either have a king who will one day in judgment destroy you as an enemy of God or verse four, you can have a king priest who grants you access to God as the eternal king. The point is you can't come to me as a man preaching. You can't come to a church gathering And gain access to God. We can't help you. You need the great high priest. In the order of Melchizedek. And his name is Jesus. See the Lord Jesus. He rules in two ways. As depicted in Psalm 110. The Psalm is fulfilled. In these two comings of Jesus. In his second coming. In that final day. He he will rule as he comes. To destroy his enemies. Vengeance will be his. But in his first coming, in verse 4, depicted there, which is an example of his rule. He rules the world today not through the sword, but through the gospel. He rules today by bringing people to himself through the proclamation of this good news. That he is the king priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. And that is why verse 4 is in the first evangelistic psalm. Uh, Sorry, evangelistic sermon in Acts 2. See, Jesus rules today, not by the sword of judgment, but by the gospel of grace. Come to him. Trust him. Psalm 110 here, amidst all the crushing, all the judgment, all the warrior-like language, is really an offer to grace and forgiveness before you face that inevitable sort of judgment. A little quote to finish. He who does not bow to the authority of Jesus in his gracious offer as the priest king to mediate on your behalf before God will have to bow to the authority of the crushing king of judgment. The warning is there. But the offer of grace through the priest king in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ our Lord, is there in the gospel. Trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do cry out as we've already prayed earlier on for all those who at this moment are feeling crushed who are feeling downtrodden, who are feeling so beaten and bruised by people around them for simply declaring you as Lord and Saviour. Help them therefore to turn, to remind themselves of this most epic and well-known of Psalms as they see the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Lord, it's horrible to to read, and yet our hope is in that final judgment. For then you will bring vengeance on all who deserve it, no more or no no less than they deserve. And yet we see it is crushing, it is awful. And so please help us trust in that gospel, that good news. That the priest is not only a crushing king of judgment, uh, sorry, the king is not only a king of judgment and crushing, but one who is the priest king, who offers us a way to know you. Help us trust the Lord Jesus, the great high priest. Amen. Thanks, Andy. We're going to sing again now. And after we've just heard this um, hugely appropriate song to sing, let's have a look.